The Cat and Cloud podcast is sponsored by Steeped Coffee. Steeped Coffee is a new brewing method that combines specialty craft coffee into a single serving bag. You don't need a machine. You don't have to make a mess no matter where you are. All you have to do is add hot water. Each steep pack is individually sealed in nitrogen flush, so it stays fresh, and it's got this special immersion filter. And the filter is ultrasonic sealed, which means it's sealed together with no glue, no staples, so there's no weird stuff floating around in your coffee. Steeped is a benefit B Corp. They ethically source all their coffee. Their packaging is fully compostable, and they believe that business should be done without compromise. You can get your hands on steeped coffee at steepedcoffee.com. That's S-T-E-E-P-E-D coffee.com. Asking your local retail stores to start carrying steeped or having your favorite roaster reach out and get in touch. If you happen to be in Santa Cruz, come on by any of the Cat and Cloud locations. We have it there for you. Basically, they're just doing their best to change the coffee industry and make your life more convenient with their pre-portioned, pre-ground innovation. So tell all your friends. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Cat and Cloud podcast. My name is Alex. If you don't know me, I am one of the employee owners here at Cat and Cloud and also run our marketing and partner program departments. I've been at Cat and Cloud since we opened our first retail store back in 2016. So it's been about four years. Um, so unless you've been living under a rock, you know that America has been undergoing sort of a racial reckoning, as a lot of people are calling it. And we at Cat and Cloud have been trying to educate ourselves to just better understand how we fit into all of this stuff. One area in which we are looking to be more inclusive is on this very podcast. So I am going to be launching a new kind of recurring feature on our podcast where we interview coffee professionals that are part of communities that are underrepresented in coffee. So we're going to talk about racism and other forms of discrimination, but not all the time. We'll also talk about just whatever that person is super excited about, you know, whatever they're working on, whatever they're hyped on. An important thing to note, I will 100% make mistakes in this process. I will say something that is wrong or ignorant or stupid and if you feel comfortable doing so, I invite you to reach out to me. Send me an email. Um, I'll put it in the show notes. And just let me know that I, I made a mistake. Um, you totally don't have to do this. I will be continuing to educate myself and you know, critiquing these things with a, a group of people that I trust. But um, yeah, feel free to reach out. I'm down to chat. Let's do it. So we're going to kick off this new approach to the podcast with an interview that I did with Bartholomew Jones of Coffee Black. I learned about him on Sprudge back in June and just got really sucked into the work that he's doing with Coffee Black. And I, I just think he's an amazing human. And I'm super stoked to talk to him and bring this interview with him to you. In this episode, we're going to talk about a ton of different elements of racism that are deeply ingrained in the coffee industry. Things like building generational wealth, the colonial history of coffee, the problems with direct trade and how we buy coffee. Um, we're also going to talk about the representation of black people in coffee and gentrification. So without further ado, let's get into this thing. Here's our interview with Bartholomew Jones. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Cat and Cloud podcast. Uh, my name's Alex, in case you don't know me. Super stoked for our guest today. We've got Bartholomew Jones, and he is the, f the founder of Coffee Black. Coffee Black spelled C-X-F-F-E-E -E Black. And... Um, 
little bit about Coffee Black. They're an emerging social enterprise that seeks to bring back the intersection between black history and black coffee. Um, Going to unpack all this stuff and more in the interview. But first, dude, Bartholomew, welcome. And I uh, just wanted Thank to, you. to say what up. Thanks for being here. And yeah, if you could just tell me about like your journey that uh, that led you to coffee. Yeah, man, I, I got into coffee. Um, you know, I was exposed to it growing up. It's kind of like a rite of passage in our community where, you know, you have to get to a certain age where you can actually drink coffee. You know what I mean? Um, yep. And when your parents finally allow you to drink coffee, it's kind of like a, you know, hey, you're kind of growing up. So I, that's my, that was my exposure. You know, they had it at church. We would, you know, have the powdery sugar and cream and everything to drink it. And um, my dad actually, and when I was in high school, started to tell me about like Kenyan coffee which I'm not really sure how he got exposed mm. to that. I know he took like a, a study abroad trip in college to Kenya. Um, and then he has one of his good friends is from California. And um, so he's like a home roaster. He works at our church with my dad. So um, yeah, got exposed, but I would never really get into it for the purpose of drinking it until um, college, you know, for the caffeine. And then after yeah. a couple all nighters on stomachs full of milk and sugar, <laughs> uh, my lactose intolerance kicked in and I was like, okay, I can't keep doing this. And, you know, long story short, that led me to really trying to find stuff that actually tasted good without a bunch of stuff in it. Yep. That makes sense without like kind of blowing you up. Uh, yeah. 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 Dude, totally. I, I definitely remember like being in college, like studying super late. And I guess my introduction to coffee was kind of similar. It was like those like Starbucks, uh, you know, those little like Ice latte things that they sell in the in the yep. glass jar. <laughs> like Ooh, those those joints that mess you up, bro. Yeah, they're not uh, not very safe for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, bro. But dude, that's awesome. Um, yeah, tell me a little bit about Coffee Black. Like, what are what are the kind of things that make up the Coffee Black ecosystem? Yeah, so Coffee Black kind of has. We, we're we're starting to think about it as a team. It's three different departments. So you have um, apparel and music, and then you have coffee and the roasting end of things. And then you have education, um, which is kind of like our podcast and a lot of our other information. So those are like the three different three different lanes that we have. And then those three different lanes kind of push people, you know, toward this idea of like reimagining and reconnecting black people to black coffee culture and what that can look like. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So you got a couple of different things going on. <laughs> yeah, um, man, it's a lot, but it, it's it's all kind of tied into, you know, make, culture making, you know, is essentially what we're yeah. trying to do. It's beautiful. Uh, is it just you in the business or do you have like a couple other people involved? <laughs> uh, no, um, I think I end up <laughs> kind of being a fall guy. Uh, so, but <laughs> I, it's definitely my wife and I uh, created it together. And, um, you know, she was, we were both working at the time. And so it was kind of my passion project. Yeah. Um, and she would do a lot of our graphic design. Uh, she's actually walking by right now. Uh, she said, hey, <laughs> uh, so she does all of our graphic design. And um, then from there, we started pulling in um, my homie, Kenny, Kenny Baker, who uh, is the owner of Ethnos Coffee. And so he started doing our roasting for us. And then on the musical tip, you know, we have a lot of collaborators we work with from DJs like Matt Mages and HD3 Beats to yeah. um, musicians and producers and songwriters like actually I met you know one of my collaborators house right now his name is Milan Cradle he's actually my favorite rapper so like we, we work with him and his family on projects um, 
And then we also on the apparel tip, my younger brother has taken over doing all of our apparel. So his name is Julian Henderson. He's also getting barista training. Uh, Then my mother-in-law does all of our packaging fulfillment. uh, My brother's wife does like customer service. And then I got a couple guys in the community who help us with pop-ups. So it's kind of like a community family effort, you know? That's amazing. Yeah. It's like a family, family business. Yeah, it is. That's, that's our goal. You know, I think that like family businesses, um, at least in our community are, are becoming more and more scarce. Yeah. You know, most people are just employed, um, and unhappily employed for the most part. And so, <laughs> yeah. um, being able to build something where our family can have some, some equity to pass down for the next couple of generations, I think is something all of us are really, mm. and, and I think in the black community, generational wealth is kind of like a, it's been a, a topic of conversation for, you know, the last 10 years. And so I think that, that, that ultimately looks like family businesses, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Tell Just me the long and short of it. Totally. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I guess like, yeah. tell me more about like that, like intergenerational wealth concept, because like, yeah, I guess, uh, it's something that I, f- uh, that I feel like a lot of people like aren't aware of that, you know, that is the yeah. issue. So, it's funny. I got into this conversation with uh, one of my frequent Facebook uh, sparring partners, um, and we <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. Were <laughs> talk- yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a cool guy. Like, I haven't blocked him or anything because nice. he's always civil, and we have a. It's you know, it's it's it's. I think it's good to have people in your life you don't agree with. Yeah. You know, you don't want to live in an echo chamber. So, hmm. um, and he genuinely cares about people. So we were talking about the protests and everything that's happened. And he was like, well, what's the solution? Nobody's presented a solution. And it was at that point that I realized like, he was genuinely unaware of like the last 400 years of solution that the black community has been putting forth. Mm. And I, I, so I made a Google doc (laughs) and I shared them like, it's like 40 books. Um, He was like, nobody's gonna read all this. I was like, I I read them. Um, But I feel like I have to read these things to be able to to protect my family. And um, Generational wealth is one of the many ideas that the black community has put forth as a solution to the, um, you know, debilitating effects of slavery and um, anti-blackness. And so essentially what that means is like, you know, you're passing wealth down through generations so that more wealth can be built. And unfortunately, most black families, um, each generation either starts at zero or they start in the negative with 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 receiving debt from the previous generation and um the way wealth is built in america is by passing it down through families um and each family either receives an inheritance or a life insurance policy or a business or property that they can then use and leverage to be able to start their own businesses which is how people escape poverty and how people build industries and change neighborhoods and things like that and so we just most black communities had built those things and they had those things destroyed, whether we're talking about Black Wall Street and the destruction of Black Wall Street in Tulsa or in Memphis, Tennessee, there was a Black Wall Street that was destroyed in the Bill Street riots. Like there's just every neighborhood almost in America that has some type of concentration of black wealth has eventually had that wealth destroyed multiple times. And so now that we are in a time and place where I think those things would be more difficult to do as far as like you know, burning a whole town down because you don't like the fact that there are wealthy black people there. Um, I think we, the goal is like, we kind of have to start again, you know, for the fourth or fifth time, whatever. Like it, it literally 
after slavery ended during Reconstruction, you had the same thing. Lots of Black families started to accumulate wealth and property. You had Black senators. Um, but as soon as those protections were removed from Union soldiers that were uh, in standing armies in the South, mm. as soon as those armies left, um, those communities were immediately burned down. The senators were kicked out of the, the Black senators were kicked out of their positions. The businesses were burned with new people. So, like, we're just continuing that legacy of trying to pick up the pieces and, and build something that hopefully doesn't get burned down, you know? Yeah, dude, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's definitely something, I don't know, this year, I feel like for a lot of people, and I mean, especially a lot of white people, uh, I, I think for us, it's been, like, a really big, like, a eye-opening thing, which is pretty silly, mm -hmm. honestly, because it's, like, nothing's really mm -hmm. new, right? Like which is kind of the, mm -hmm. the messed up part of the whole thing is like, like we're just becoming aware yeah. of it now, maybe partially because of COVID and because we're like stuck in our homes and like really like more, you know, we have more time, more, more exposure to everything that's going on with yeah. racism in America. But um, yeah, I think George Floyd <laughs> kind of changed a lot for people, man. Yeah. You know, I think so too. I hope it was a permanent change, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah. It's definitely been a year of, of learning and kind of just just like peeling back the, the layers of the onion a little bit more and, and trying to like step outside yeah. of our our comfort zone uh at least for me personally that's been my goal um yeah yeah but yeah so that the concept of intergenerational wealth is something that i never thought about but it completely yeah. makes sense because that's like how uh you know like white people have been able to uh you know be passed down generational wealth so it's Right. And a lot of times, I think on that point, it's like a lot of times when people throw the word systemic racism around, I think it confuses people because they feel like that means there's some uh, boogeyman like behind a curtain kind of pulling strings and yeah. making things stay racist. When in the reality, like just the simple concept of generational wealth is like you only need someone to be racist one time mm. uh, for there to be a pattern set. And then if that pattern continues with no other disruption, things will just stay racist. Even if you take away right. that original, um, you know, racist force, the effect has already been had. And so there's a chasm, there's a gap, you know, a wealth yep. gap uh, or education gap or all the other gaps and it's uh, gapping your teeth. I don't know. There's a, there's a bunch of gaps. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those, those continue. So I think that, you know, generational wealth is one of the things mm -hmm. that people are positing as a solution. And I think also it's a solution because we also live in a world where there is employment discrimination yeah. um, for poor people, for black people, for people of color. And then also I think there's employment discrimination just period. Like I mm -hmm. think that if you're, if you live in America right now and you go to college and graduate, and I just know this as a teacher, like, you are not, probably not going to have a job waiting on you because you went to college. Like jobs are right. really going to come from a family member or a friend who, you know, are in the industry and have some way to employ some type of nepotism. And so yeah. generational wealth is also important because it, it kind of help can, it can help to guard you from some of the discriminatory effects of like systemic racism, or even just, I think, um, I think that industrialization, yeah. has just and outsourcing things to other countries has created a situation where there's just job security period and so especially if you're starting behind like most black families are i think it's even more important to kind of think about okay where will my children be employed 
if, if push comes to shove, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Huge yeah. stuff, huge stuff for sure. Um, yeah, so I was reading through as I was just kind of like learning about you. I learned about you originally from uh, Sprudge article uh, that yeah, came yeah. out a number of months ago, uh, shortly after the George yeah. Floyd murder. Shout out to Sprudge. Yeah, shout out to Sprudge. Uh, and I saw that they named you one of the Sprudge 20. Um, yeah, that was crazy. They had like an interview with you. Congrats on that. That's super sick. Yeah, this, the, the homie uh, Cameron Heath over at uh, Counterculture recommended us. And so we're really grateful to him for, Dude. you know, recommending some, some, some country folks from Memphis nice. <laughs> for, uh, for the award, bro. We're so grateful right. for that. Yeah. Heck yeah. Um, yeah. so in that spread interview, you said, uh, something that really struck me and that was coffee, like many other things has been colonized. Um, so yeah, yeah. I was just wondering if you would be down to like unpack what that means yeah man we're we're actually building my wife is building um a pdf that can kind of wow kind of walk people through a timeline um but you, you know the teacher in me just likes you know timelines and so <laughs> I, was, I was a teacher for eight years so i'm like oh it'd be cool if people could visually see you know what we're talking about but as i'm doing this i'm going back and just like trying to pull some really specific dates um uh, on the colonization of coffee and so, um, you know, we know in 1616 that, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that some some Dutch individuals were able to get coffee beans from the port of Mocha in Africa um, and try to transplant those in uh, the Netherlands, which, of course, fails because coffee is a tropical fruit and yeah. the Netherlands are the Netherlands. So <laughs> it's not going to work. They thought they were getting um, away with The it. reason, though... Yeah, the, the the reason though why that's important is because there was a ban on exporting the uh on exporting the good. Hmm. And the reason why um the reason why there was a ban on exporting the good is because or specifically coffee is because that specific fruit was something that black people had a monopoly on. And so if you're supplying the world, coffee's becoming like uh you know a huge drink all over the world in europe and and the muslim empire and it's spreading all over the world so mm -hmm. if you're the only place that can produce it why would you want to give up your monopoly on that you know what i right. mean totally. um you wouldn't want people to cut into that um so in that regards um that's really where the colonial desire began because colonialism really is about repurposing resources uh, whether they be human resources or whether they be natural resources right. or even cultural resources, you're trying to repurpose those and use those to um, support your own empire. Right. And so coffee is one of those things along with, you know, uh, cumin and cinnamon and clove cacao, and a bunch of other maybe. spices. Yeah. Cacao things that just simply the, the European world couldn't produce naturally. Mm. And they were very popular. They were highly traded commodities along the Silk Road and so on and so forth. And so people were like, yo, okay. Um, we could use these resources instead of simply just purchasing them. Um, uh, we can start to produce them and then get more of the profit. Right. Um, but you know, the, the infrastructure just wasn't there for it. And so the solution that many European countries found was conquest, you know, will conquer, uh, I think Sri Lanka was the next attempt that the Dutch made um, to get coffee beans. And they were able to find some plants that had been planted there by Muslim invaders. 
and took that over to Indonesia and then colonized people in Indonesia. And then that one of those plants was given to um, the king in France, who then had um, one of those seeds stolen and that was taken to Haiti. Um, and then those people were colonized. And then someone else did a similar thing and took a plant to Brazil. And those people were colonized and they brought slaves over to help yeah. grow the thing. And of course, they weren't only planting coffee like people were planting any other cash crop. They were planting cotton, tobacco, corn, sugarcane, anything that could be you know, mass produced and grown and shipped around the world. And so unfortunately that process, not only was people taking natural resources and trying to repurpose them or um, steal them, uh, but it was also people using human resources like human beings through the slave trade and also indigenous people who were there to grow those things and to use their labor for free. And so when we say coffee, like many other things has been colonized, what we mean is that coffee has been taken from its indigenous spot in Africa um, you know, through Sudan or uh, Eritrea or um, Ethiopia, Yemen, like taken from those indigenous places where just where God decided it was going to grow. Um, and it's been planted around the world as part of the profit that was, you know, hoped to gen- hope to be generated through like colonial conquest. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, and it, yeah. it, no, it totally makes sense. I mean, it's, it's definitely, uh, I think it's an aspect of coffee that people don't really think about and don't really get exposed to until, um, you kind of like think about it. But, um, I mean, it's also, it, it feels like there's just like a uneven distribution of wealth, you know, between where coffee is produced yeah. and, uh, you know, yeah. Where does the money go? And that's, that's uh, like you wouldn't you wouldn't steal something, you know. We call it Grand Theft Java, you know. But you wouldn't you wouldn't steal something um, and go through all this trouble to then like steal a labor force only to split the profits evenly with the you know stolen labor force that you're you know yeah. in in uh, employing. Like you would, you want to keep the margins as small as possible. And unfortunately, that's the industry standard. And so even when we try to adjust you know, things to be more ethical, like the the relationship still ends up being very imbalanced um, once things get on the consumer side of the colonial system. You know, once we get on the consumer side of coffee, um, like the, the farmers still end up getting shafted, you know? Right. Even especially coffee, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that totally makes sense. So you mentioned like direct trade uh, and I guess like... Uh, a lot of a lot of different roasters do direct trade right like everybody kind of has their own like brand in a lot of ways yeah everybody says and yeah. so i was new to coffee right like i think when i when i started in coffee i had been drinking coffee since like 2013 right. third wave coffee you know um i was drinking coffee before that but i didn't, i wasn't paying attention to like where it was from or how it was prepared or how it tasted without additives um and so all of those things put me in a position to where finally when I wanted to start selling and producing coffee through our own company, you know, I was really naive. I was like, Oh, we're just going to get a coffee. It's going to taste good. We're going to pay, you know, we were paying like five, five fifty or something for the bean. I'm like, it's hey, a lot of money. It's pretty good. This farmer's probably getting most of that, yeah. you know, and I was just really naive um, on the way that the money is split. Mm. Um, and so as I'm, I'm going to, say i'm not gonna say who the importer was but i was we were working with this importer and i was talking with a guy uh who's a good friend of mine now 
Um, and he was describing, I told him the importer we were working with. Um, and this guy said, y'all, I'm gonna be honest with you, bro. F them. And he mm. said the whole word, you know what yeah. I mean? And I was like, okay, all right. Why? Like, explain to me why. And he was like, because they're basically still practicing colonial uh, business models with these farmers. Mm. And that blew my mind. Cause I was like, but I'm paying so much for this coffee. Like I'm paying as much as I can. Why is it that this farmer isn't getting a fair shake? And he was describing something that as he continued to describe it really clicked with me. And I was like, wow, I actually knew what was happening to those farmers without him even finishing the story because what yeah. he was describing was something that happened to my my great grandfather, oh, which wow. is called sharecropping. Mm. Um, and sharecropping is something that happened after slavery. It's essentially where you have people who own land and want you to produce on their land, give you tools, resources, using credit to cultivate the land. They get they buy the seeds, and then they cook the books to where at the end of your harvest you're still in debt to them. And so that process is what my grandfather went through here in America. And as he was describing what was happening to these farmers, excuse me, my great grandfather, uh, was what these farmers were going through. I was like, wait, so I bet at the end of the, the, the selling their harvest, a lot of these farmers are still in debt to these companies. So it's like, yeah, how did you know? And I was like, mm -hmm. because that's the same thing that happened to my family. Right. Uh, and so that for us was like, okay, I don't want to participate in it. Like, I can't, you know what I mean? Like not all the work that my great grandfather had to go through to just escape sharecropping. Um, I can't conscientiously tell my children, Hey, we're going to make our, we're going to build our family business off this, you know, right. when this is a part of the reason why I'm just now building a family business <laughs> after yes. 400 years of being in this country. Right. Uh, so I was like, okay, direct trade is a solution. And as I talked to a lot of my mentors, one of whom is like Martine at Mayorga, he was telling me like, man, a lot, unless you are going to be able to buy coffee at scale, which we're a credit-free business, um, so that becomes difficult when we're only using the the revenue that our that our products generate. Mm -hmm. um, then it's not really worth it for a lot of these farmers to do a direct trade relationship with you. Like they're actually better off selling coffee to a lot of these colonial in, importers. Mm -hmm. Um, because even though they can only pay a buck 25 per pound, they know they're going to get their whole harvest purchased. You're just going to purchase two sacks. Yeah. <laughs> so right. five bucks for two sacks or one twenty five <laughs> for the whole harvest. Like you, the, the solution is scale. Right. Yeah. It's security and scale. And so, um, as we're growing, I think I've had to humble myself and be like, okay, boom. So. If I want to do direct trade in a way that actually look that's actually beneficial for the farmer, it doesn't just look cool on our website. Um, right. Then that's going to require me to do the hard work of finding partners who can help me purchase like full containers. Mm. Um, gotcha. And so we've been we've been partnering with actually Mayorga um, Martin is one of my mentors on like doing the back end work to find out who are some of the farmers who are already growing the coffee that we really like. Like right now we have a coffee from the Bentinanka village in the Guji zone that we really, really like. Um, and man? so he's doing research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Guji man is, is kind of like the, our house blend. It's always a single origin. So it's not a blend, but I don't think there's a word in coffee yeah. to describe uh, something besides a blend. Like, I'm like this is our house. <laughs> it just sounds weird. So it's easier to yeah, say house blend. Um, but it's been three different coffees. Like at first, the first coffee was a natural. 
uh, which was like super like uh, velvety, uh, raspberry, mm. caramel, weird. And then the next one was like very like cacao bits and cacao bits and blueberry. And then the one after that was like vanilla lavender. And then this one is more like blackberry, sparkling red grape, and like uh, like a really milk chocolatey finish. Mm. So you got four Dang. different copies in the bag of Gucci Man. Um, and so the big idea that we wanted to communicate to our community is, hey, coffee comes from Africa. Like, that's a simple yeah. concept, but every time I have that conversation, it's always a new piece of information. Yeah. So like, <laughs> that's why we don't have multiple origins is because we specifically want to communicate this one specific piece of information really effectively. Mm. And once we bring people into what we call brew culture, um, then the goal is to branch them out to really dope um, roasters of color, specifically black roasters who we really like, like people like Steven Zinnerman at the Coffee Enthusiast or the people at Portrait Coffee or the people at Boycott Coffee or um, Brandon over at Bridge City uh, Roasters or Red Bay or a billion other roasters. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of our goal is like we're basically looking to do the work of culture making in our community around coffee and wealth generation in our community around coffee. Um, and then as we do that, the industry will kind of build itself out. Like we imagine like a lot of new roasters being able to come because there's a bigger consumer demand now generated from people learning more about coffee, expanding their palates, finding a personal historical cultural connection to the, to the, to the cuisine as well. Like I, we, I feel like there's now we're building the room for there to be more roasters, for there to be more shops. And so if we try to, as a company, be the one-stop shopper, we're your shop, where we have seven different coffees on hand at all times. Like we're kind of killing the opportunity for growth. Like what we want to do is help more families get in, more black families get into coffee as mm. a business and as a culture, as opposed to trying to dominate that. And then we're basically killing the opportunity for growth, you know? Got you. And that's how you, that's how you envision like kind of changing specialty coffee for black people is by creating those opportunities and, you know, creating the, the opportunities to start businesses, kind of using the model yeah. that you've created, and kind of like the, the culture that you're creating around it. Yeah. And so to answer your question about direct trade, like we're in the middle right now in the process of building a relationship with that village while COVID is happening. Yeah, totally. um, and also working with um, a couple, like, so we just purchased some coffee from a Darien, uh, Larry Sun, whose family owns uh, like 70 acres of land in Haiti. Hmm. Um, and so we purchased, um, and of course he's black, his family's black. So like we're talk as we connect people to the diaspora, we want to talk to people about Haitian coffee. There's a farmer named Jelton who we're, we're building a relationship. I want to say building a relationship because I just feel like there's this like people say direct trade and it's not really direct trade. You know right. what I mean? It's them working with an importer and they have pictures of the farmer that the importer owns. Yeah. But I, I don't want to do that. So like unless I'm going over there and I know their family and their family knows me, I'm not going to say direct trade. And so, um, yeah, we're building a relationship with Costa traders who one of their farmers is uh, Afro-Colombian man in Calca. And so we've been talking to them for like seven months. We sampled the coffee, but it's just hard to get coffee out of Calca um, mm. because there are no roads. Uh, you know, you have cartels and then we're in a pandemic. Uh, <laughs> so 
where we sampled it and now we're waiting. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which I feel like it's what happens a lot of times when we meet a farmer or a farm collective is like, hey, what's up? And then they say, hey, what's up? And then they send us a sample and then, you know, we are, we're just kind of waiting around for harvest to be ready. Right. Um, Man. So, yeah, I think direct trade is a, is a goal for us. Ultimately, our goal is to start warehousing multiple coffees from um, Black farmers around the country or Black uh, washing stations around the world. Um, mm. And then making those more easily accessible for a lot of Black families that want to do something like direct trade, like where we can just connect the farmers and the families who want to start businesses. And then we have the coffee locally here in the States. So all we have to do is ship it to them. So we would essentially like mm. grow an import arm. Um, yeah. but I just want to make it easier for people because it's been really hard. And do it without credit. And so I'm like, well, if I can have you, we can set up a FaceTime or a zoom call or a Skype call between you and this family. And that family can decide if they want to work with you or not. And you mm-hmm. can decide if you want to work with them or not. And you guys can build, um, really our, our long-term dream man is to make like Tinder for like black <laughs> coffee companies where people can create <laughs> profiles you can see if they want to swipe up, you know, or down. I, I, when I got married before Tinder was cool, yeah. one of the like, left directions. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, and then match, like maybe you all both have daughters and that's a connection you have. Or you're both Muslim, mm-hmm. that's a connection you have. Or you're both Coptic Christians. I don't know, but like just being able to make these connections across the African diaspora um, around coffee and us being able to do business with other black people around the world, um, that's fair and that helps all of our families kind of move out of poverty is our long-term dream. Dude, I'm inspired. Those are some amazing goals. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I'm not an app developer, so I'm just throwing it out there. You know, shoot, hit me a DM. Like, a lot of crazy gotcha. stuff happens from the DM. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, I've got a little bit of tech experience from back in the day. Uh, I got to dust off the cobwebs, though. Maybe I'll... Come on, man. Up. Let's make it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, dude, That uh, another question kind of relating to something that I, I, I read about you that you said in an interview, but, um, you were kind of talking about like just feeling a certain way when you first got into third wave, like not really feeling supported, Mm -hmm. maybe not really seeing people like yourself, uh, you know, present in, in third wave coffee, feeling like you couldn't, you could never pull the correct shot. You could never afford to roast or have your own brand. Um, what are some of like the cultural norms of third wave coffee that you feel like discouraged you initially and maybe discourage other uh, black indigenous people of color to yeah. not get into it? And I'm going to be honest too, man. I think that it is not only discouraging mm. to black and indigenous people. I think it's it, it discouraging to a lot of people who feel othered. Mm. Uh, I think it's discouraging to a lot of poor white people who live in like, you know, trailer parks or in the Appalachia, you know what I mean? Like there, there are lots of communities that are kind of like put off by coffee, third wave coffee. And it's not because third wave coffee is trying to do this, but it goes back to the conversation we had when you have a very rich, wealthy uh, group of white men who build an industry uh, on excluding and extracting labor and wealth from other people. Right. Um, specifically indigenous and black people, but other people, period, then they really only have to build that industry and infrastructure one good time. And then even if people are liberated and even if prices change moderately, the overall bent of the structure is still one in which, you know, you come in as someone on the bottom looking up, hmm. you know, 
and that's always an intimidating situation, you know, where you come in with no information, with no access because they've claimed all the ownership over this. And then you kind of have to look at someone who holds all the information and therefore all the power. Like that's just an intimidating right. place to be. Um, so I think that it takes a certain kind of individual to make a decision when you're in that scenario to say, you know what? I think I can be that guy or girl too. I think I can be the person with all the knowledge. I'm going to work really hard and study and buy a refractometer and like, just <laughs> go for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you have the other kind of people who feel like, you know, uh, Oh, I could never. And I think you tend to find more people in that group who are black and who that group tends to be less and less like the person with all the power and all the information uh, for a myriad of reasons, uh, you know, representation or, you know, like, um, cultural familiarity with what's going on. Like there's so many things, but that group I've inherently looks less like the person who holds all the power at the moment, which a lot of times in that first interaction is the barista, right. even though the barista within the hierarchical structure of a coffee shop, or when we talk about the industry as a whole, doesn't have very much power at all. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? On the normal, I think you guys at shop is trying to change that, but you know, they're making, you know, seven bucks an hour plus tips. So right. like, yeah. <laughs> that person doesn't actually hold much power, but it seems like they do when you walk in. And so mm. that's who you make your decision off of. Now, right. thankfully in Memphis, I met a lot of really cool baristas, but what was intimidating to me again was just the overall slant or structure of the way the power was structured in a lot of the shops was that it just looked like it was something that I couldn't do because I didn't see people who looked like me doing it. And I think a lot of people felt that way, not just me, not even just black people, you know? Yeah. Um, and there were some black people who went and just did it. You know, they were just like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to dominate. I'm just, I just don't have a dominate personality. Like I'm not a person <laughs> who like walks in a situation that looks like it's not for me. It's like, I'm going to beat up everyone here until I get what I want. <laughs> it's just not, I'm just not built. I'm more of a vibe type person. So I was like, eh, I'm just going to chill. You know, I'll ask some questions. I'll build with people. Um, but as we started to do that, I started to find more of a cultural connection to coffee through learning about Ethiopia and weren't learning about even the ways that Ethiopians enjoy coffee and the cultural settings and norms. Uh, this is very familiar to me, you know, growing up in a black family in the South, like the, the meals during the day and sharing food or sharing a beverage during the day on a regular basis. And having rituals that you do in your community that are centered around food. And as a person who follows Yeshua, I'm, I'm a person of faith, um, believe in the scriptures, like Ethiopia is the oldest Christian nation in the world. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And so, uh, which is another thing that I personally had to go through as I seek to decolonize my faith and learn like, okay, a lot of the things that I learned, you know, from white Jesus or whatever, just weren't true. Right. Uh, yeah. So now I have to go find the African roots of my faith even. Mm. Um, and that whole process syncing up with Ethiopia being the oldest Christian nation, which is also um, a black nation. They had, you know, Christianity way before it ever got to Europe. I'm like, yo, this is crazy how even their faith is tied around Buna mm. or, or coffee, you know, and that it's a part of celebration. It's a part of their faith life, their spiritual life. It's a part of the family life. And so for me, as like for what we're doing here, like it's like, bro, this is, it fits. It's just, I think it felt like it was meant to be, you know? And so that's where I started to feel empowered. It wasn't because I could pull a really cool latte art or, really? you know, it was for me, it was finding I had a historic kind of a historical claim to this being a part of my culture and my family where I felt like, oh, wow, this is something that 
maybe was supposed to be a part of how my life was mm. going to be if it had never been interrupted by the process of colonialism and slavery. Um, and so like maybe it would have spread all the way over to West Africa, you yeah. know? Um, and then also another question, like my friend Steven, again, at the coffee enthusiast, he's working on a paper right now about West African coffee. They found indigenous coffee in West Africa now. Hmm. Um, and so like, that's a whole other conversation about like, wow, okay, what is the indigenous coffee culture like there? This is not something that's been transplanted like it was in other situations. This is something that actually grows indigenously, um, without colonialism. Um, hmm. and a lot of that coffee is actually uh, in the process of becoming possibly colonized, a, a lot of it is being bought and transplanted to China um, <laughs> or grown specifically for like another country's purposes. Yep. Um, so it's crazy. Like that to me is the the connection that made me feel like, wow, I can really do this. And I remember specifically having a conversation in Memphis um, with a shop owner and I was like, have you guys ever thought about roasting your own coffee? And they told me like, oh, that'll cost us like a million dollars. We'll probably just stick to being a multi-roaster. And I remember hearing that and I was like, well, if these, you know, white people feel like it's going to cost them a million dollars, it's probably going to cost me four, yeah. you know, <laughs> to get into it. They have a coffee shop already going. They have some source of income that I have. And so I just kind of felt really defeated in that moment. But mm. again, it was learning about African interactions with coffee you know that really empowered me to feel like i could do it and so it was like seeing coffee from a black perspective in a black cultural spot um yeah so it was like yo i realized like wait there there are women in ethiopia who've been you know sourcing roasting barista-ing that's not a word but brewing um <laughs> coffee for people three times a day mm. for the last like i don't even know 700 years <laughs> like, yeah, true. Yeah. you know like that that just blew i mean it's crazy wow it's absolutely crazy and so it, it blew or maybe 500 600 years i don't know but it blew my mind to think like this is something where it comes from and that these people are black and they're enjoying it without any type of uh certification required no mm. degrees no certificates no scientific gadgets um yeah, and even though i think yeah, no refractometer. And I throw shade on refract. One of my one of my favorite coffee guys here, Joseph, um, he has a coffee company he's building and they, they have a refractometer. And I gave him one of our coffees the other day. I was like, yeah, throw the refractometer on. Like it's fun. Yeah. Check um, it out. And I'm a nerd at heart, so I love anime, video games, and like it's cool. But I but to, to necessitate it to participate in the culture or to be quote unquote good or official. I think is is kind of ridiculous and it yeah. ends up being really damaging definitely wow yeah that all makes a lot of sense um dude so i just got just a couple more questions for you um yeah i kind of okay. wanted to just ask like like what do you want to see more of in specialty coffee you know from kind of from the perspectives of everything we just talked about like yeah I think that I get this question a lot and I think I've kind of figured out my answer. At first, I'm not going to lie, it was a weird question. Um, yeah. But I, I think for me, the, the the thing that has rang the most true is to be, I think the question that gets framed a lot of times is how can, you know, specialty coffee shops be more inviting to black communities? 
or having specialty coffee be more inviting to the black community. And um, I try not to speak for indigenous communities or Asian communities, Latino communities, or for the LGBTQ community, because that's that's not, I don't, I don't wanna speak for people who I haven't lived that experience, you know? I think there are experts from each of those communities who I think need yep. to be heard, you know? Um, but I can't speak for the black community. And um, I think for us, the the solution is not necessarily to think about more ways to invite us in, but more ways to actually acknowledge that you're already in something that is black. Mm. Um, and so uh, there's multiple levels of that. So the first level is most coffee shops are in black or Latino neighborhoods. You know, a lot of the new coffee shops like that are opening, especially right. third wave ones are in gentrified neighborhoods. So I think acknowledging the fact that you are actually entering if the U is a coffee shop, you're entering a black community. You're entering into a community of people and businesses and churches and schools. And so I think by actually seeking to actually be an, uh, an authentic member of that community who's integrated, you know, um, and not simply just there kind of pretending that you're in some imaginary hipster wonderland, right. uh, I think is the, is the first step. And I think that if you enter it, as a person who respects and values the assets that that community has, that you will see that you actually have an opportunity then as a member, as a neighbor, to then offer your assets in collaboration with the assets that already exist. And I think that keeps a couple of things from happening. One, it keeps um, kind of like a, a poverty mindset happening where it's like, oh, look at the poor blacks and they need our help. You know, I think it keeps you from kind of like the savior mentality. Um, and then I think, too, it keeps from a really negative view of the neighborhood setting in, which is there's only crime, there's only poverty, there's only fatherlessness. Uh, while those things may be present, there are also a lot of really beautiful things present. I think if you enter in it as a community member seeking to find and value the assets, like going to the restaurants in the neighborhoods, partnering with the bakeries that already exist, you know, even if they're not, you know, Le Petit Crimp uh, Tart <laughs> or whatever the right. cool hipster bakery is, like partnering with the local donut shop mm. or, you know, part like partnering with businesses that exist there, um, partnering with schools then. So I think if you partner as a member first, just seeking to going to the restaurants that are in the neighborhood, enjoying them, patroning them, going to, if you're a person of faith, attending the churches that are in that neighborhood or religious houses that are there. Um, you know, thinking about the schools that are in those neighborhoods, if your kids are already enrolled, like, would you consider sending your children to the school? If not, why not? And right. are you willing to be a part of changing the reasons why you wouldn't be comfortable? You want your business here, but you don't want mm. your kids. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, then I think in that regards, too, it then gives you an opportunity as you're engaging in them to build relationships and to say, like, as you're a part of the conversation, people saying, man, yeah, like the kids don't have anywhere to go after school. But, oh, we're actually looking at starting a coffee shop in the neighborhood. Like, mm. how can we help with that? You know what I mean? Right. That's a way more, um, I think, a way more integrated solution to the problem. Um, and when you're having those conversations with kids in the coffee shop or with, you know, maybe you're at the local school and you, people want to look at that. There's like, you know, a career day and they want businesses to come in and talk to kids about career opportunities. You can talk about the career paths, but that only happens if you, have a relationship with the school, you know? If you have a relationship with the people at the school or the church is doing a drive, you're like, hey guys, we can come set up a pop-up, you know, and give away free espresso for, you know, the stop the violence 
march. Like a lot of black churches have these white marches um, where people are dressing all white and they march to, to end violence in our neighborhoods, which is ironically a thing that a lot of people don't know. And they bring yeah. up like, hey, what, why don't black people do anything about black on black mm. crime? And it's like, we actually talk about it all the time, but y'all aren't over here. So you don't yeah. know. But I think like at one of those many instances where people are trying to improve the community, like people would love a cup of coffee, right. you know? And I think coffee shops could very easily partner and say, hey, we want to we wanna donate coffee or we want to sell coffee, you know, here. We want to partner with this church. We want to partner with the school. We want to partner with this business. There's a restaurant that has really amazing soul food. You know what I mean? Like mm. maybe you can start catering from them or, you know, find a way to partner where people can, you know, or maybe you can offer your coffees for their drip, you know, right. and say, hey, have you ever tried? And here's some really, some cool coffee that's grown in Africa, you know what I mean? Like, you might really enjoy this. There's a lot of, like, um, Black History Month events that happen where people talk about Black history. Like, your your local third-wave coffee shop could be a huge plug to talk about Black history through coffee. Right. But that never happens, I think, because most shops are only in the neighborhood for what they can get um, and what they can bring into the neighborhood as far as business is concerned and not in, in it for what they can get from the neighborhood as far as assets and businesses that are already there and what they can learn um, and participate in with what's there. So I think that in that regard, I think uh, a lot of shops are missing out. And then hmm. what happens is like, you know, years and years and years of a shop being in a neighborhood and being this kind of silo in the community that doesn't really interact with the community and the community doesn't really interact with them. Then all of a sudden, you know, then they have to try to figure out, well, wait, what can we do about racism? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's really late in your existence to try to start building a relationship. Because like one thing about neighbors, you know, the best time to meet your neighbors is right when you move in. Right. If you've lived next to somebody for like 15 years and you never said a word to them, like it's going to be weird trying to start the relationship <laughs> when you're 16. You can do it, but it is awkward. You know? yeah. And so I think if any advice I could give is for people who are starting shops, like seek to really partner, engage, survey the neighborhood before you open. So when there are needs that pop up, you're able to indigenously be a part of the solution to those needs. Right. And when there are benefits that the neighborhood is experiencing, like maybe there's a local artist who's working on a mixtape and you're like, oh, wow, we, we have a music night every Friday. Would you ever want to come perform? You know what I mean? Things like that are ways where you can start to benefit from a lot of those things too and celebrate the things that the neighborhood is celebrating. It seems like just like basically be a member of the community. Like don't just it's have so a easy. business there and just yep. you know, have that be your only exposure to, to the community, like actually participate in it. Yep. And then I think the other piece is as you are educating your patrons, because coffee shops, specifically baristas, do a lot of education. Like, yeah. I learned everything I know about third wave coffee from really dope baristas in Memphis. Mm -hmm. um, I had great experiences in all my coffee shops. Unfortunately, a part of the information that people were educating me on was not the African origins of coffee. Right. It was on, you know, how to make a really great V60 or yeah. why does espresso taste the way that it tastes or, Hey man, here's some really great milk that we just got and we're going to froth it. Or man, have you ever tried oat milk? Like those are the kind of conversations we have. But I think a big key here in the conversation is baristas seeing themselves as community engagement mm. agents right. um, and as activists and not just as and educators and not just as coffee professionals. Right. Um, and so I think there's an opportunity for shops to become hubs for empowerment 
um, and for people to walk away feeling like they're, you know, more connected, more encouraged, you know, more capable than they ever were before they came in. You know, I think they can come a lot from just the baristas, like, you know, noticing people's natural inclinations um, and really empowering people uh, with even the history, their own historical connections to coffee. Um, and I think also, like, it just comes from being aware of the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and I think a lot of that comes down to, I found a lot of times when you have a more diverse staff, it's easier for those baristas to naturally connect and empower with people that they have a similar culture with. Not saying it's impossible to cross cultures, but I think it's just, it, comes, it happens more um, naturally. Right. So when you're hiring black baristas um, or even hiring, that going back to that first conversation, now you're a part of the hiring program for the local high school. Okay, I'm hiring and training baristas hmm. from the neighborhood. Yeah. Now when another kid from the neighborhood or another black person walks in, that barista is able to make a way more special, unique, and genuine connection without having to go read six books. You know, right, exactly. like they're able yeah. just to take some general information and make a really powerful personal connection. So the first step sounds simple, just be in the community. Right. But if you get that first step right, it actually allows you to make some really complex, like um, empowerment moves and pedagogical moves on a later end. And I, if you're curious about the historical or some of the theoretical background, a lot of my um, personal praxis comes from um, the works of a guy named Paolo Freire, hmm. who was um, an educator for the campesinos in Chile, uh, and I think Brazil and Nicaragua. Um, he worked with adult farmers who were illiterate, so he did literacy work with them, and he was a big um, a big part of them becoming, those communities becoming empowered to reclaim their industries, you know. Um, which as we talk about it, like he was a big part of my education journey, but I realized like he probably worked with coffee farmers, uh, which would be interesting to look at. And a person who's kind of taken his work, this was written in like the seventies. Um, it's called pedagogy of the oppressed. Um, and it talks about something called, um, a cogenerative dialogue, which is essentially like, a um, a cumulative circle of empowerment where you start off empowering one small group of indigenous people and then those people become the educator ambassadors for this information and this new way of thinking to other members in the community and that process continues to reciprocate mm-hmm. um and so like someone who's taking this concept which is kind of like a even the book is translated from spanish so like the book here yeah, he wrote it in spanish Paolo did. yeah um, but like somebody who's taking this writing and kind of contextualized it is a, a guy named Chris Emden, and he wrote a book uh, for white folks who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too. Um, and so he contextualized it for what he calls neo-indigenous peoples, which is basically just acknowledging the fact that many of the interactions that educators or businesses, in my case, I'm kind of taking his information and applying it to business just because I treat my business like my classroom. Um, but a lot of the interactions that educators in public schools have with kids in the neighborhoods is very similar that uh, colonizers or, you know, colonized businesses have with um, indigenous people. And it also happens to be the same populations, just like a couple of generations removed because of migration. So um, yeah, that that book, I would say definitely check it out. Uh, really, you can just start, you don't have to read Pedagogy of the Press. You can just start with um, For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood and the rest of y'all too. And he has a chapter on the co-generative dialogue and, um, 
that particular, or he calls them cogens, um, just because it's easier to say. And when you're trying to talk to a high schooler about like a special uh, extra credit program, like it's easier to say, hey, do you want to join my cogent? Um, than say, yeah. like, hey, come join my cogent. It's weird. So actually, <laughs> funny, funny story, some of the kids that we are training right now, one of the kids particularly, was the first student that I brought into my cogenerative dialogue when I was a teacher. Wow. So he basically was the impetus for like this new way of educating I was trying to do in my school. And now I'm working on training him to be a barista so he can start doing this process with kids in our neighborhood and empowering them with coffee education. Damn, full circle. Training. It's crazy. It's coming full circle. Dude, that's, that's awesome. I love what you said about like, baristas kind of being in that position where they're interacting with so many people, uh, that they have like, you know, like massive potential for, uh, you know, spreading good, real information. Uh, they have the potential to really impact a whole community bro, yeah. and empower them to see career paths that they would have known to find a connection to a culture they didn't know was there mm -hmm. because it's been colonized. And I, I've said this before, but one thing that happens with colonization is that things lose their identity, right? Yeah. Because if, instead of it being, you know, Yemeni coffee or Ethiopian coffee is just coffee. Or yep. even instead of it being Buna or Quaha, it just becomes coffee, you know, and it turns into Java, which becomes a general term instead of even recognizing the Javanese people who were, you know, the, the first colony outside of Africa where coffee was being mass produced and, you know, sent around the world. So like, I think that, that they're really able to give that identity back to coffee that that African identity, or in this case now, the African coffee, we have Asian coffee, we have Latino coffee. They're able to give this coffee kind of back to the African, Latino, and Asian people who are now patroning the coffee shops and saying, like, this is not in a weird way, because that can turn really weird really quick, which is one of the reasons why I say, like, it's helpful to have people from the culture working in your shop. Right. Um, so yeah. you don't have like, you know, this white guy, Hey, don't you know, like this coffee's African, <laughs> so are you, isn't that dude, cool? Damn, like, that could be, <laughs> be so awkward so oh quick, even though it's coming from a really well-intended place, but I think it helps when you're hiring or when you have reasons of color who can do that a little bit more savvily, you know? Yeah. I could see that not working out too well for sure. Yo, uh, dude, even the playlist is a big part of it. Like mm. what kind of music is being played, the decor, like yeah. the marketing behind a lot of third wave shops is really directed in a in a minimalist kind of like modern chic like black and white and right. you know edison lights doesn't necessarily <laughs> scream like black people you know what i mean right. it just does so, so it kind of screams like affluent suburban mom so yep, totally. <laughs> i think even the, the the design choices can be intentional mm. um and maybe partnering with architects or with artists or muralists who are from the neighborhood or, you know, yeah. there's, there's endless possibilities once you do that first step right, which is just be a good neighbor. You right. know what I mean? Like just, that's just like in our scriptures, that's the things, love your neighbor as yourself. Like you're, if you're a good neighbor, like a lot of these other things, you won't even have to happen because think about or have someone explain it to you because it'll just happen. In yeah. You'll you just be living it. That makes sense, dude. Yeah. Um, you're just going to do it. Something that's really kind of, difficult about Santa Cruz is that it's a very, um, predominantly white community. Like it's probably like yep. 90% white or something like that. And the, yeah, I, the I was next... hearing, um, one of your owners was talking about that. And I think you guys yeah. get to get, I mean, that's kind of a cool that you don't have to worry about colonizing a neighborhood. Necessarily. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I guess <laughs> just the challenges, like 
bringing diversity into the company because, um, uh-huh. yeah, it, it just is such a, and it, what I'm saying is actually not completely true because, um, there is like a really large Hispanic community, um, in Santa Cruz mm. and just outside of Santa Cruz that I think, you know, there's definitely ways we can, we can be better about like being more intentional. Come on, about bro. You solving the problem community. already. Let's I know. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, that's what we're in the zone yeah, with right you know, now. I, actually, I do know what we can do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we've been, uh, we've been trying to educate ourselves and, you know, like making this a part of our conversation rather than just yeah, kind of being like, okay, well it's, it's not really affecting us, but I think that's been one of the biggest yeah. things that I've been learning is just like, I actually feel like incomplete in so many ways because I have not been exposed to other cultures as much as I, as I wish that I have. And I feel like there's so much that, uh, white people can learn from other cultures that just gets lost in translation. Um, bro. And that's the cool thing about humanity is I think God made us to learn from each other as Mm -hmm. opposed to apart from each other. Like, this journey even started for me in college. I went to a Korean church for four years yeah. and I learned so much about my faith and about humanity, just like learning and being and getting to observe a culture that I wasn't a part of naturally. Like it made me appreciate my own culture more, other cultures more and their culture more at the same time. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that is uh, one of the beautiful things is that like it just, it becomes this really beautiful process of like growing and being a more full human, you know, right. and learning more what it means to be human. That's awesome, man. Uh, well, dude, I don't, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, um, but just before before we go, um, yeah, anybody you want to shout out that you think people should learn from or follow? You, you already shouted out a couple books, but like anything else you want to you want to bring forward? Um. Yeah, so I definitely say check out all of those things that I mentioned. Um, uh, I would say take out the coffee enthusiast. Uh, he's he's the homie. Um, so please go check out his company. Um, please go check out uh boycott coffee. Check out Ethnos Coffee that we work with. Um, check out Milan Cradle Music. My favorite rapper. Dude's amazing. Um, and he's been a partner with really helping us, um, expand musically. And that's a big part of the culture we're trying to build. Uh, Brown Girl Lettering is my wife. She does all of our graphic design. So if you need any graphic design stuff, check her out. Um, and then Melanin Essentials is also a company we really love. They create really great products. Um, so yeah, check out all those things, yo. Dude. Awesome. Give them a follow. Anything else you're working on that you want to, uh, that you want to shout out right now? Yeah, we're launching our coffee subscription, and so we're looking to get 100 subscribers. So now that we have more employees, we got to find ways to sustain uh, basically paying them right, <laughs> without totally. getting into credit. Yep. And so monthly income is really helpful. Um, we're also getting ready to launch. Uh, we actually just announced uh, a limited collaboration with Mir. So we're doing a limited mm. drop of some really cool merch. Um, nice origamis coffee canisters tumblers like the whole it's really dope um, so yeah. those are on our website now too um, and we're doing monthly brew ups with people who uh, are partnering with us and so we're really excited like those the people who are in the subscriptions are really helping us redefine this new brew culture beautiful Eddie uh, where, where can people find you online 
Uh, Coffee Black everywhere. C X F F E E Black X like Malcolm X. Just put an X where the O goes in coffee. Nice. <laughs> Coffeeblack.com. Amazing. Bartholomew, thank you again for joining. Um, really enjoyed our conversation and definitely want to talk to you more. Uh, yeah, and just, just keep the connection train going. But, yes, thank um, you so much, man. You too. All right. Appreciate it, dude. Have a good day. Yeah, take care, man. Keep that coffee black. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> cool, man. Peace.